Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. It's also good to have Cyan Han with us this morning. I was doing the old Brown County redneck thing. It'd be Cyan Han. But it's Cyan Han. I believe I'm right. <laughs> but we first met, oh my goodness, down in uh, oh, Sovereign King Church uh, at... Uh, that uh, Aaron Wren was speaking there, right? Yeah, I think that, so however long that was. But uh, Cyan is a student at New Geneva Academy, Academy, or, (laughs) my goodness, New Geneva, what's the rest of it? It is Academy, okay. (laughs) I don't know, it's only the presbytery we belong to, you know, I mean, so. (laughs) Um, But uh, New Geneva Academy, and uh, you go to Trinity, right? So he goes attends Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, and um, it is so we are so thankful to have him with us here to preach unto us the Word of God. And it's been a pleasure over the last couple of years or so to slowly get to know Cyan whenever we're able to see each other at a presbytery meeting or some other event. And he has spoken here before. I was not here, but uh, he is preached here before, and so it's an honor to have him back with us this morning. And so, Simon, would you please come and preach the Word of God to us? So when I met Pastor Brown down in Sovereign King Church, it was quite memorable because I was eating dinner with, uh, with everyone, and my fellow student, Matt Shifflett, was there, and he was choking on a cookie. And uh, someone nearby had to do a Heimlich maneuver <laughs> to really help him out. So it was a quite memorable uh, <laughs> dinner. Um, yeah, thanks for having me back. So it's been, um, last time I was here was last July, I believe. And so it's been a while. It's good to see you guys again. And so, and it's a privilege to speak God's word in front of you, before you. So, for our today's text, it's from Luke 14, verse 15 to 24. And what I should have done is double-check what translation you guys are using, because I've prepared everything in NASB 95. Okay, so, here, in this context of Luke 14, we have Jesus going around from village to village, proclaiming the gospel, And on his way to Jerusalem, he is invited to um, house, to dine with the Pharisees. And the host is one of the leaders of the Pharisees. And before I start reading the main passage, I want to read a couple of verses before that so that we can get the context. Because in verse 15 in our reading, 
a man starts proclaiming something, and he is responding to Jesus' teaching prior. And so we want to hear what Jesus was teaching prior. For everyone who exalts himself, so from verse 11 to 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a oh, luncheon, am I pronouncing correctly? <laughs> or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return and that, you, uh, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so when Jesus is dining with the Pharisees, he is seeing this game going on with the hosts, with the guests. He is seeing how the host has invited the elite of the elites. It's the lawyers, it's the Pharisees. Those are the leaders of the Jewish society. And he's seeing the guests how they're eyeing who is going to be seated at the seat of honor. It was a custom for people of the guests of honor to be seated in in certain arrangement. And so they're just all playing this political game at the dinner table. And so he's pointing that out and basically he's telling them, do not um, try not to benefit while you're on earth. Invite those who cannot give you any favor in return. So he's seeing their selfish heart. Um, and it is in this context where a man, in verse 15, cries out, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so I want to turn to uh, our main passage from verse 15 to 24. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man is giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider being excused. Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. And the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city And bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us this word that we can know more of your truth, the good news, 
the state of our sin, our condition, and and uh, your goodness, your provision in our life. Please, Father, as we uh, study your word, as we dive uh, deeper into your word, would you convict us of our sin? And would you help us to bring closer to you, open our eyes and open our ears to hear your word and to respond with soft heart, with humility. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So in verse 15, uh, it's either a Pharisee or a lawyer who brings up the kingdom of God in the context of a feast. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if he responded with sarcasm, with cynicism, or whether he responded with a genuine heart. But we have to remember he is dining with the Pharisees and lawyers. And in the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus heals during Sabbath and they're watching closely what Jesus was doing, and they're just um, they're judging what Jesus is doing. And so he's dining with these people, and and regardless, he's doing a religious and pious claim. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Luke, when he's introducing the author of the gospel, when he's introducing what Jesus is about to say, he uses the word, but. And so, um, Jesus seems to be responding to this man. What do you mean by everyone? This man says, everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But who is this everyone? And whenever the Bible uses the word like, but, we have to pay close attention because Luke doesn't write more over as if whatever Jesus is about to say is adding to what this man has to say. I mean, it is a true statement. Everyone is blessed who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Luke uses the word but to contrast something. And what Jesus is about to say is contrary to whatever the Pharisee had in mind. And Jesus says, or here in verse 16, it starts, but he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. <clears throat> so we have to remember that they have been invited already. It's not like the slave came out of the blue and is trying to drag them in the last minute. Come on, let's go. Let's go to the dinner. No, they knew that they had been invited, and the slave came to remind them and to invite them because the banquet was ready, Right? And again, we are in the setting of Jesus talking to the Pharisee at the dinner table. And uh, with the banquet representing God, who are these people that have been invited? I mean, it's it's the Jews and the Pharisees who are the elite of the elites. They naturally would have expected, well, of course, we are the leaders of this Jewish society. Of course, we would be included in the kingdom of God. Of course, I will dine, we will dine 
at the table with our Lord. And that's what the Jewish people would have thought as well. And it's, it's not unusual to think that way because, after all, they, are, they were the covenant Israel, the covenant nation. Um, I mean, from Genesis 15, God made covenant with Abraham. And since then, throughout the scriptures, it's constantly reminded, I remember the covenant I have made with my people. I mean, for example, in Exodus 6.5, when Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, it says, Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Leviticus 26.42, Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham as well, with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. I mean, you look um, also through the Psalms. It mentions about covenants. You read through the prophets. I mean, it's, there's a constant reminder. And the Jewish people, they're like, yeah, we are the chosen nation. We are the chosen race. We will be part of God's kingdom. But Jesus, Jesus is speaking turning the table and saying, well, really though? Being born a Jew doesn't guarantee that you will be seated at the table of the Lord. And particularly, he's talking to the elites who were looked up in the Jewish society. They were the religious leaders. In Galatians 4, 4 4-5, it says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as sons. So the Jews rejected, they rejected Christ when he came in the fullness of time. And so do these people in the parable. When here in the parable it says, come for everything is now ready. So the fullness of the time of the banquet has come, and the people are starting to reject the invitation. And, um, I mean, when you look at the banquet, banquet alone, you don't show up whenever you want to. The host has set the time when the banquet is ready, and uh, when the feasting happens, when the banquet happens, is done according to the will of the host. But here... They come up with excuses one by one, even though they have been invited ahead of the time. Well, so what's the big deal? In the parable itself, what's the big deal? They are, kind of, they are rejecting a dinner. They are not being hostile about it. But I think we have to understand the significance of the dinner as well. In this cultural context, they are not grabbing McDonald's food on their way home. It's a dinner. It's a banquet. And there is a significant cultural, um, there's a cultural significance to a meal. And for example, when we, I mean, it is a hierarchy, hierarchy honor culture. And when we compare, for example, wedding. Weddings today, we perceive them to be expensive in the last couple of hours. But wedding back then, in ancient Israel, it lasted even up to a week. And even today, there are cultures that celebrate weddings for days. One of my Indian friends, he flew back to India, and he had to have, he, his wedding was about three days, 
And over the three days, there were about 1,000 people in this village that were showing up for this wedding. Not all are invited, but um, in, Indian, in some certain regions of India, they actually pay you. I'm going to come to your wedding. <laughs> so they pay you, and they invite themselves into <laughs> to the, uh, to the wedding. And so he had almost 1,000 people in this village show up to his wedding over the course of three days. Or in Arab homes, even today, dinner is considered to be climax of the social gathering. And so a couple of weeks back, there are two Muslims that are attending my church right now. And one of the Arab has invited a couple of us. Actually, I wasn't invited. But a couple of my friends were invited to his home. And they were wondering, when's the dinner coming out? Just taking such a long time. But what they were doing is they're preparing table and snacks before the dinner. And they kind of, uh, um, the dinner is not served right away because the dinner is considered the climax. And so they're working themselves up to the dinner. And once the dinner is done, they're supposed to leave. And so it's, it's etiquette. And I was reading an um, etiquette guide for, um, about Arabs that once the dinner is done, leave right away. <laughs> It's a little bit different, but it is different, and, and meal is important. There's a lot of significance attached to having meals with people, and it is, um, I mean, for example, in the Old Testament as well, we see a lot of significance attached with meal. For example, ceremonial meals, like Passover meal. Uh, we have, uh, when two parties are making covenants, they share meal together, peace offering, um, or you see prophet's vision as well, like Isaiah 25, 6, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And we see also in the New Testament the significance that is attached, attached to meals as well. For example, what do we do as church? We share communion meal, the Lord's Supper. Um, in the book of Acts, whenever the, whenever the church gathered, they broke bread. Uh, Jude mentions the word love feast, which we often understand it as to be a communion meal. And so it's not that we have completely lost the significance of meals. We, as Americans, we have Thanksgiving dinner. And there are occasions, and there are special occasions, but we have moved away to, towards an individualistic society where food is commonly available and it's readily available to us. I could drive and just pick up food right away. So I think it's important how important it's important to understand what kind of significance and weight a meal has, and to be invited ahead of the time to come to your house. And these people in the parable, they knew ahead of the time and they have rejected. And so it's not just being rude to, inject, uh, to reject dinner. It's actually offensive the way they're doing these things, the way they are rejecting. So food is more than social occasion. It's more than networking. It's more than nourishment. But it's the climax of um, of 
pleasure, enjoyment, and fellowship. So in Romans 9, 4 to 5, I want to turn to Romans 9, 4 to 5. Um, Here, Paul is listing the privilege that the Jews have. So the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Israel had all these privileges available. And Paul here, when we look at verse 2, he's, he's grieving because he knows what the Jews have rejected. All the accumulation of the promises manifested in Christ. They're rejecting Christ. Paul is very, he just expresses his grievance in verse 2. And we might think, oh man, what, a, what group of stupid people. They're rejecting all this wonderful promise. But when we take a step back, we are also the ones who have been invited. We have been invited to the lavish banquet to dine at the table of God. And many of us have grown up hearing the gospel. And many, many of us here, because we profess to be Christians, And so, like the Jews, we assume that we will dine in the banquet. That's our basic assumption. Growing up in a Christian culture, Christian family, that's what we usually assume. My aunt is Christian. My mother is a Christian. My grandma is a Christian. So, hence, I'm also a Christian. We take many things for granted. I mean, you just steps outside of America... And you have many places without the gospel, without the word, without church, without, without the privilege of having preached to you every Sunday. And even actually my, um, so if you don't know this about me, I partially grew up in Germany. And that's where I consider my, uh, my hometown in Germany, which is in Germany. And I was able to visit a couple of months back. And You'd, you'd think, Germany, that's where Martin Luther was. That's where the Reformation started, right? Isn't that an awesome place? But no, it was actually a really depressing visit because it has been seven years since I visited my home church in Germany, and I show up, and the first thing that happens is handful of people, handful of uh, parents of my friends coming up to me in tears and telling me how they, their children have left faith don't come to church anymore. That's an awful feeling you have when you're trying to visit your home church. You're trying to enjoy the time, but all these people are coming up to you in tears because their sons and daughters have left faith, right? And that was my, throughout my experience and throughout my time in Germany. And we can't take these things for granted that we are sitting under the blessing to having gospel preached to us every Sunday with the scriptures, with these people. 
It is a great privilege. And so I want to give you two warnings. And so first, don't be a Pharisee. Jesus is talking to Pharisee. So first one, don't be a Pharisee. And second, don't make excuses. And let me elaborate on those two points. So first, what are the Pharisees known for? They're known for their high view of Scripture. They memorize Scripture. They had high knowledge of God, high knowledge of the Scripture, and, and although they had all these knowledge, they were condemned. So people who do have higher knowledge of Scripture and knowledge of God will be judged accordingly. And if those knowledge doesn't humble you, then you will be humbled at the seat of judgment. I mean, another thing they're known for is, for example, tithing. They were known to tithe very accurately. 10.0000% like precise, right? So, well, com- comparatively, I might give more. Or I am very precise without my, with my tithing. But guess what? Jesus condemns them for that. They're violating the heart of the commandment, which is to be joyous and to be generous in your giving. Another thing they're known for, their piousness. Long prayers. When they're fasting, they look themselves miserable so that it's announcing to others, look, I'm fasting. But despite all this religious life they're portraying, they're full of deceit and hypocrisy in their heart. I mean, Jesus is saying, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Another thing to notice about the Pharisees is that they have set up their own little kingdom. Although they were under the rule of Rome, when Jesus came and started to proclaim the gospel, their little kingdom that the Pharisees have set up started to be disturbed. They're feeling uncomfortable. They have invited Jesus to test him and to judge, okay, where is this man going with this? And continuously, they're feeling this disturbance in this, their little secure order and system that they've built up. Who is this man teaching with such authority? Right? And in the book of Acts, same thing. When the apostles are proclaiming the gospel... The Jews, the Jewish leaders, they all become so jealous to the degree they're blaspheming God. That's what it says in the book of Acts. And so overall, we have to examine our heart. As John Calvin famously says, man's nature, so to speak, is perpetual factory of idols. Despite our religious and pious life that we might practice, even the little gifts that God has blessed us with can be idolatry in our heart. The little things that we do can be idolatry. For example, setting up, uh, setting up for the service on Sunday morning, right? I mean, in, at, at my church, because we are using a gym uh, for our service, constantly there's um, chair being set up and taken down, set up, taken down. Even that... I mean, you might think, who am I to do these things? 
I mean, this is waste of my time. That's one way to think. Or on the other hand, you might think, what a great servant I am. I mean, this church is privileged to have a person like me to serve the church. Whatever it is, it can get to us, to our pride, to our false humility. And so we can get into a regular rhythm of religious life, a routine of religious life, where we forget the urgency, urgency to self-examine. And so the second warning is our um, excuse-making, constant excuse-making. Um, so when we look at the first excuse in verse 18, it's about what? It's about land. The man has bought land. Land equals wealth. It's great possession. And the second excuse is yoke of oxen. Ox, one ox is extremely valuable, expensive. They can do great amount of farm work. And yoke of oxen requires two oxen. And five yoke of oxen requires five oxen. I mean, that's, that's an incre- incredible asset to do field work. When you compare to a modern, brand new, big tractor today, that might cost even half a million dollars. And what's the third excuse? It's the newlywed. We still have marriages going on, right? And so we might relate to that a bit more. And so some of you might say, come on, give them a break. They're newlywed. Or some might say, well, they're married. It's not like they can't go to the dinner. Give them a, uh, I mean, they should do their duty. Go to the wedding. I mean, being married doesn't change a thing. Just, just go. But then again, we have to remind ourselves that there is a commandment by God for the newlywed, that the man should take an ear. Um, what does it say? It says, uh, he shall not go out with the army or be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So maybe that's a good excuse for him to be excused. But when we look at the, when we examine the excuses, it's actually quite funny and pitiful. Well, why, why is that? For example... When you buy land, which is not cheap, when you buy land or when you buy yoke of oxen, do you examine afterward you have bought? They, it says they have bought already, and they have bought yoke of oxen, and they decide to examine afterwards they have bought. Or do you examine at the, right at the time when you are being invited, when the slave is sent to you to remind you and to bring you to the banquet? And actually, and the third, the newlywed, he doesn't even excuse himself. He says, I can't come. The other two, at least, they are being polite and, trying, and say, please have me excused. The third man doesn't, doesn't even excuse himself. And all these excuses is nothing new, and we see these in our very lives. I mean, land. What is um, What is land? It's possession. We make a lot of excuses because of our possession. Oxen. It can represent vocation, education, 
wife can be relationships. I mean, when we're talking about wealth, it doesn't even have to be a great wealth. With, uh, I mean, when I, I was very stingy myself and tried to protect my pocket change in, at the cost of being generous and hospitable to my fellow brothers and sisters. I mean, I was a guy who you would find me in, when I was in undergrad, you would find me in every event getting free pizza. You'd find me in every corner in every uh, event because I, you know, I had to do that. But when we're talking about vocation, how often do we prioritize vocation over the church, the bride of Christ? We are, looking, we are always looking for better opportunities, right? And so have you ever thought about sacrificing your vocation to serve the church? And it, it, it is hard, and it, it's, it's, a, it's happening everywhere. I mean, my family moved to the United States because of my dad's occupation. But we should always consider, we should always think about choosing the, um, the location and the vocation based on church because it's not about our health here on earth. It's about our spiritual health. And it's not just for yourself, but it's also for your family that we have to think about. Where is your primary source of nourishment? That's what we have to think about. Or what sacrifices do we make because of relationship at the cost of regular church gathering? Um... When I first moved to the United States, I, today is a Super Bowl Sunday. And when I first came to the United States, one thing I was shocked is how, how many people did not come to church on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, or w- one time, uh, my family, we drove to a church on um, Christmas Sunday, and we found, it, we found out it was closed, and we were just standing in front of an empty building, Wondering what happened. And that was a great shock to us because before that, we were, when we were in Germany, we, um, it was an international church with people of various backgrounds. And we knew people who came to faith through blood and tears. We had Chinese people that were leaders um, of underground church or uh, used to being part of underground church in China. Uh, people who came to faith um, I mean, Muslims who came to faith through miraculous ways. And so for us, knowing the cost of uh, what it means to be a Christian, for us, the highlight of, in the week, in the month, in a year, was the gathering of the church. And it is, it is a great privilege not to be uh, interfered, intervened by the government and by the persecution. It is, that is a great privilege. And with excuses, I mean, we have to stop making excuses. We have to learn to be honest. In Matthew 21, Jesus gives another parable of masters sending slaves, and the uh, workers on the field, they kill the slave that the master is sending. I mean, here in, in this parable, they're not killing the slave. They're making excuse. They're trying to be polite. But if we strip down the excuse, 
what they're, what's really going in their heart and in their mind is much more brutal and much more evil than we realize. They might just straight, straight away just say, no, I don't want to come. But it is better to be honest than to disguise and cover up with excuses. I mean, excuse-making is ancient as mankind itself. When Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they were tempted. They were tempted to hide. They were covering themselves with fig leaves. And when God saw them, what did they do? They started making excuses. Excuse-making is common among children. And adults are no different from children. We're just better at it. We're just better at making excuses. And so, and so uh, not being able to make, make excuses leaves us vulnerable and naked. And we have to deal with the responsibility. And so if you don't believe in the gospel... Better for you to say, I don't believe in the gospel. Or, or when you have a great sin where you say, if people find out about my sin, they would run away from me. But it's better for you to be honest about it. Um, it's better to be honest than to be, to be a double-tongued man who disguises in sheep's clothing. And it's better for a patient to be honest about symptoms about his sickness than to disguise or to hide from the doctor, right? J.C. Ryle says, it is not avowed dislike to the gospel, which is so much to be feared. It is that procrastinating, excuse-making spirit which is always ready with a reason why Christ cannot be served today. And so at this moment, some of you guys are maybe making the same excuse to reject the invitation, to reject to come to Christ. And I don't know what it is that you're running away from. And it might be, uh, it might be growing in godliness. It might be fighting sin. It might be um, trying to escape from certain responsibilities. I don't know. But we do it all the time. I mean, have you been confronted about your sin and you find yourself making excuses? Another quote from J.C. Ryle, Infidelity and immorality, no doubt, slay their thousands, but decent, plausible, smooth-spoken excuses slay their tens of thousands. No excuse can justify a man in refusing God's invitation and not coming to Christ. Now, a lot of the examples that I gave um, right now are in the immediate context. Here, the church represents a banquet. We share communion meal together, and we invite people to church. This, is a rep- this church is a representation of a banquet. But Jesus brings a larger picture. He is talking about eternity. He's talking about the banquet we will have with God. And so you who have been granted the privilege of having gospel preached to you every Sunday, and you who have been invited to the banquet of heaven, are you there to commit yourself to Christ? Or are you like a Pharisee who 
has all the right words to say and right gestures to make just to be filled with deceit, pride, and greed in your heart? Or um, are you an excuse maker who has one foot in the world trying to satisfy your lust in the world and one foot trying to satisfy people in the church? There's a Korean idiom that says, trying to catch two rabbits at once, you lose all. We can't satisfy both our lusts and God. And there is a cost of being disciple. And rest of the uh, chapter 14, Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. And so when you grow up in a Christian culture, in Christian household, we so easily become lazy and comfortable and fat. And just like uh, we easily become the very Pharisees that Jesus is condemning. And Jesus says in verse 21, Then the head of the household became angry. And in verse 24, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. On one hand, banquet means comfort and joy and nourishment. On the other hand, to be withheld from the banquet means eternal damnation, torment. To be cut away from the banquet is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so coming back to the texts, who are invited instead? Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. In this immediate context, those who are invited, those he is referring to, are what the Jews would have regarded as the scums of the society. They were the people that the Jews would have rejected. They were the outcasts. I mean, for example, people with skin skin diseases, you can't touch them. People who are born blind. I mean, they were, they're like, okay, he's a sinner. I don't know whether it was his mom or his dad was a sinner or whether he himself is a sinner, but is a sinner, outcast. In, um, in the early Jewish collection of a Jewish teaching, Mishnah Abbot, it says, talking to a child destroys a man. You see disciples trying to hold the children back from coming to Christ. But what, this, what did Christ do? He rebukes his disciples and welcomes the children to bless them. Also, first century um, Jerusalem Talmud, uh, one of the rabbis is teaching that he would rather burn Torah, the word of God, than handing off to a woman. That was the first century teaching in the Jerusalem Talmud. I mean, you look at the people that Jesus was with, right? And, and and we, don't, we, don't even, we don't even think about women and children in, in, in the first century context. But, I mean... It's so, it, it was so different. 
we could easily imagine, okay, people with skin diseases, who people who, um, um, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, we have heard those things before, right? But even, even children and women, um, we don't even know about these things. It's not, as, it's not a common knowledge to hear. But even in, in all those cases, in all those contexts, Jesus was spending time with them. And that's uh, why the Pharisees, the Pharisees are constantly pointing out, why are you hanging out with these people? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And in this picture, Jesus is also prophetically bringing in the Gentiles into the picture. Now, all these, all these I'm, what I'm trying to say is, it's God's heart. He's a strong desire in his strong, um, deep heart for the lost. And uh, we cannot be, uh, I mean, we, it's so easy for us to be standoffish and say, um, well, hopefully God, fingers crossed, you will work in their heart. This neighbor I know, with this man I know, hopefully God, I'll cross my finger and I'll pray. But if you understood the urgency, the heart of God for the lost, I mean, in the next chapter, Luke 15, the whole chapter is about God's heart for the lost. If we understood the urgency, we would go out and compel them to come in. And here the master is telling the slave, compel them to come in. And compel here is actually a really strong word that oftentimes people replace the word with force them to come in. Um, Spurge, I think it's Spurgeon that he uses interesting expression, gentle violence, using gentle violence to, uh, for the word compel. But, it, it, I mean, it's not physically forcing them to come in, but it's the urgency, utmost urgency to have people, to invite people to the banquet of God. Convince them, persuade them. Right? Are they lame? Carry them. Are they blind? Guide them with your hand. And we also have to understand that we are the very poor, crippled, lame, and blind. In verse 14 that we read in the uh, previous teaching, he was talking about to invite those who cannot do any favor in return. And he used the same words, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and blind. We are the very people who cannot give anything in return. Right? And if there's one thing I want you to take out of my sermon, that's, that's one thing, that you are helpless and in complete need before God. And imagine those beggars, those lame people, the outcasts of the society, sitting in the street corner or in front of the temple begging for coins, covered in dirt, lice, body odor, all these things, and you have the slave of a nobility or a king compelling you, urging you to come to the banquet. I don't know if you would jump up and go straight away, but reality is uh, they might feel hesitant to come. They know themselves. They are of a lower class, covered in dirt. But that is often also, and that's why we are compelling them to come. And we often find ourselves to be hesitant as well because of our sin. We often feel our guilt and shame. And that's why we feel this hesitancy to, to 
even come to church on Sundays because of that. Well, we can't be, we can repeat what Adam and Eve did by hiding and covering themselves with fig leaves. If you know and if, if you have the guilt and shame, that's more reason why you should come to the banquet. That's more reason why you should be here. We don't come here because we are better than others. And we don't take communion because we don't have any sense. We come here because we are in need of God and we recognize that and we confess that. And, um, And that's also the more reason why we should go out and compel people to come to the banquet. God is a God who invites many. And we know the grace and the mercy that we have received because we know and we confess together that Christ has died for our sins so that we may have eternal life. The blind man in, in John chapter 9, when he was healed, when he gained his sight, he found himself testifying in front of the people and in front of the Pharisees on multiple occasions. What has happened? Samaritan woman at the well. I mean, she was known for avoiding people because of her sin, um, living with a man who is not even, uh, not even her husband. And she goes out into the town and tells people to come. She's testifying. So how are we different from either of them? The man who has been cast out due to his blindness, the woman who had the stigma of living with a man who is not a husband, they became, as Matthew Henry puts it, apostle to their neighbors, they became messengers who testify Christ. In Romans 10, 14, uh, 10, 14 to 15 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. We are appointed as slaves of God to go out and proclaim the good news. That's what we are appointed for. We have tasted God's goodness, and we are here to testify the goodness that we have experienced in our life, and we want people to come to the feast. And there is nothing we lack either to go out. God has given us everything we need. You, we might not feel confident, we might not feel equipped enough, but God has given us everything that we need. He has given us the Holy Spirit and has, He has given us the Word. Um, the story with Lazarus and the rich man, he is, uh, the rich man is in eternal torment and he sees Father Abraham and pleads with him to warn his five brothers who are still alive so that they may not come to uh, hell. And Abraham responds, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham responds to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man 
the Pharisees, these people had the whole counsel of God, the Old Testament scripture that testified the coming Messiah. And when Christ came, they rejected him. But we have something greater and better. We have the testimony. We have the Gospels that tells what Jesus did, his what he did for us. We have better things and fuller things that is present right before us and is, right, is readily available to us. And we are standing on the blessings of our fathers in faith who, do, who have toiled and shed blood to make the scripture readily, readily available. We are blessed by the fact that the gospel is preached to us every Sunday. Pastor Brown. So what will you do? Will you come to the banquet? Will you accept the invitation? And will we stop making excuses why we can't come? We have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ while we are still sinners. While we are still sinners, Christ died for our sins so that we may have eternal life. And through him, we are invited to the banquet to enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, you reveal to us your heart. Your heart is to invite many. Your heart is to, to compel people to come in. Yet we do not feel the urgency. We are sitting here on the great blessing, but we, we do not realize what a great blessing it is and what great privilege it is to sit here. If we really realized how precious it is, we would feel and see the urgency that you have for the people who are lost out there in the world. Father, let us not be excuse makers. Let us not be people who come up smart reasons why we can't do this, why we can't do that. And, let, and please, Father, don't let the shame and guilt hold us back to come to you. Please, Father, let us come to you in humility, recognizing our need and that we can be nourished, that we can have peace, that we can have joy at your table, Father. Father, please, humble us and give us strength. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.